Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Freedom of Species would like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, who are the traditional owners of the land on which we broadcast today. We pay our respect to the elders of all of the lands on which we meet across Australia. Hi and welcome to Freedom of Species, we're a show that brings animal advocacy to the airwaves of 3CR Community Radio. Before us you heard Sally with Out of the Pan. Make sure you check out Out of the Pan every Sunday from 12 till 1 uh, live and you can also check it out via the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au. Um, and yeah, check out the previous episodes covering issues uh, around rainbow communities and, and issues. Today on the show, I'm going to bring you a talk uh, given by regular Freedom of Species contributor Harley McDonald Eckersall and also Jam, both from Animal Rebellion. And this talk is called um, Anti-Speciesism and the Fight for Global Climate Justice. I think this talk specifically and, and this topic generally is is a really important one um, in that a lot of the issues we talk about on the show, whether it's anti-dairy, anti-fur, anti-animal testing, whatever the specific issue is, uh, all of these are really symptoms of this overall problem of speciesism. So I think it's a really important issue for the animal movement to address. Um, and yeah, the speakers will go into what speciesism is, but I guess just briefly to set it out for anyone who's unfamiliar with that term, basically we're looking at this idea of uh, human supremacy, uh, discrimination based on species, um, and yeah, human the the sort of view of human superiority over other animals, and also they'll get into some of the complexities in the talk as well. The idea of um, speciesism within animals, uh, within non-human animals, the idea that we often place one animal above the other, um, perhaps because an, an animal might be seen as closer to a human or uh, more useful to humans, etc. So there's also sort of speciesism within. Uh, non-human species as well in terms of our views towards them and our attitudes towards them throughout the talk they also touch on um, connections to other social justice issues and how speciesism is related to colonization uh, capitalism racism um, yeah wide range of other issues as well throughout this talk uh, and also, if you're in, ch- in checking out the, the visuals and that kind of thing from this talk, um, it's up on YouTube on the Animal Rebellion channel. So you can search Animal Rebellion on YouTube. Uh, and yeah, again, the video is called Anti-Speciesism and the Fight for Global Climate Justice. You can also find out more about Animal Rebellion at animalrebellion.org. So I think that's all for me. Let's get straight into the talk. So... Um, the idea for this workshop came up quite recently um, with the recognition that there's this big concept that's captured 
in Animal Rebellion's principles and values. Um, there's this concept that we, you know, number one principle and value that we are an anti-speciesist movement with a shared vision of change. Um, and there was a recognition that this is so essential to what we do. Um, and there's a need, and then therefore there's a need to kind of unpack what does speciesism mean to animal rebellion and for animal rebellion and how does it kind of come out to play, come to play with the way we see climate justice and animal justice and the way we kind of shape our movement around that. So today we're kind of going to touch on these ideas of you know, what is speciesism, but also why it matters um, to the climate movement, um, why animal rebellion like, kind of tries to build this bridge between the two movements, why they're so intrinsically connected, um, so why kind of the, the connection and relationship to animals is so connected, we believe, why we believe it's so connected to our relationship to the earth and our kind of climate activism. So the way we interact with animals is such an essential part of our life, like regardless of where we live in the world, um, regardless of our kind of job or circumstance or situation, animals end up being all around us. So, you know, it might be the birds that we hear outside our window, might be the dogs and cats um, or mice or bunnies who we share our homes with, or it might be the insects who crouch unseen behind furniture um, and share our homes and every kind of aspect of our lives. We interact with animals both in our physical world, um, so like, you know, when we're going for a walk and a squirrel runs across our path, um, but we also interact with animals in our metaphorical and symbolic world. So from the language that we use when we say, you know, we've had such a, you know, a dog of a day or something like that, to the toys we give children, to the colloquialisms we use to describe bad situations. We refer to and evoke the bodies and behaviours of animals. And at the same time, and this is something that we're all, I think, deeply aware of, humanity has spent recent centuries creating carefully built walls of language and attitude and assumption and architecture which serve to distance ourselves from non-human animals and which normalize a system of exploitation. And this pervades all areas of our life. And I think this is something that we all see and realize when we're trying to fight for the climate and trying to fight for animals, that the system is made to keep us separate from these like these non-human aspects of the world. And this system is kind of part of what we call speciesism. And I think it's important to note there's a deeply rooted and entrenched, but also it's a constructed system of dominance. And today we'll be trying to unpack this construction um, of how we relate to animals um, and what it might mean for us and how we can kind of think about it in new ways. So, as I said, yeah, this is it's deep rooted, it's entrenched. But I think the most important one for me here is that it is a constructed system. This relationship we have towards other animals, um, towards non-human animals, is not inherently or intrinsically natural. Um, and like I said, again, like this is something I think we're all aware of, um, that the way we relate to those who aren't human isn't natural and it doesn't feel natural, but it can be often difficult to articulate why it is the way it is. 
So I could start, you know, by getting, you know, having kind of, you know, an activity where we all think about, you know, what makes a human life worthy. And, you know, I might, we might all chuck out like words like intelligence. We might say compassion and empathy. We might say comprehension of the future, hopes, dreams, love. We might even just say just existence, like existence is enough to make a life worthy. And then I could, you know, talk through all the ways that animals show these qualities. And this might include chickens who pass down cultural knowledge um, to elephants, elephants who grieve and to fish who use tools. But I'm not gonna I'm not gonna do that. Um, and the reason I'm not gonna do that is because I do believe that every one of you here, at least on some level, knows that there is nothing that makes humans intrinsically superior to any other species. And I think we're all here because we want to think about um, how, sorry, how our relationship to animals, um, like how we can think about it on a different level, how we can think about it as and understand it as being connected um, to all these other things that we see in the world and all these other systems. So what I'm going to talk about instead is a form of systemic structural oppression that is built into our system and which allows these systems to function the way that they do. And something else that everyone in this room probably already knows that our system is not broken because it contributes to destruction. Um, at the moment, the system that we live in was built to destroy and it was built to exploit and it is operating as planned. And what we might not know is how the dominance of animals and the treatment of them as lesser than what we call speciesism has been a core part of this system we seek to change since the very beginning, um, since its inception. So before I, we dive in and before I hand over to Jam um, in a second to talk a little bit about the concept of species in 101, um, I thought, yeah, it might be helped to kind of introduce myself a little bit more um, and kind of answer the question of who am I to talk about this? And like I said, I'm not an expert. Um, and like I said, yeah, Jam and I, neither of us are claiming to be experts on this, but I have, you know, I have a history, I have a reason that this is a topic that I'm really passionate about and that I really care about. Um, and, you know, like a lot of people, I grew up surrounded by animals. I grew up surrounded by dairy farms, um, actually, um, down in the country in rural Australia. And for most of my life, I never questioned the way we interacted with animals. I never questioned the relationships we have with animals. You know, I lived with a lot of animals. I rode horses. I um, had this care and love for animals in my life. And I never questioned whether there was a different model, there was a different way of conceptualizing how we related. Um, and I never questioned the idea that in some ways I was superior to other animals. And then I started to encounter this idea um, and I started to encounter this idea that that model of relationships might not be the only one out there. Um, so I started to read a lot and look into this, but I think the biggest thing is I started to question my relationships with the animals around me. And I started to see connections that I just hadn't seen before. So that picture on the left, that's a picture of me um, with a dog named Axel. Um, he was a dog I met at 
in Palestine um, at the Palestinian Animal League. And the reason I put this picture there is because this was a moment where the an understand a deeper understanding of speciesism, like what I'm hoping to kind of talk about today, really rose up in me. So basically, at this place um, where he where this dog was, um, it was in the middle of um, Palestine, and there was a deep rooted fear of dogs um, in a local community because of ways that dogs have been used by an, by the army um, to build fear in people. So what this group, the Palestinian Animal League, recognised was that people would be scared of dogs, um, so they would beat do- beat the dogs, um, like street dogs who lived on the street. And then, then those say, same people, so these were kids who would do this, these same people would then grow up to enact violence on their family, um, and it became this kind of cycle of violence where violence towards animals um, which came out of violence towards children then led to you know domestic violence so what this group started to do was they started to introduce children to dogs that they had been rescued um, and kind of build these relationships and break down that fear barrier Um, and what they noticed was that in doing so violence in the community started to fall Um, so as, like, as I was saying before, it's like this was a moment where I really started to see how our relationship to animals does not exist in a vacuum. It's connected to our relationship to other humans. It's connected to our relationship to the planet. And I started to understand how if we understand why we relate to animals the way that we do, we can understand um, a lot more about the world and we can also work to build ways of challenging these systems um, and building new systems that aren't built on the same kind of forces of oppression. So yeah, a couple of months later, after I was in Palestine with that dog Axel, um, on the picture, the picture on the right is me getting arrested for this very cause, um, for this belief that there are different ways. There's different ways of relating to animals. There's different ways to kind of existing in this world and this is like a fundamental belief that I have and I'm yeah really glad to see so many other people here to kind of be having this conversation um and yeah it's it's I think it's the conversations that we need to be having you've been listening to a talk on anti-speciesism by Harley and Jam uh from Animal Rebellion we're going to play a song now. The first song is an animal animal liberation song. This is Every Last Life by Resist and Exist. Um, it's a hardcore song, so probably not everyone's cup of tea musically, but if you don't like it, it's, it's over very short as hardcore music tends to be. So, uh, yeah, really short animal liberation song. Um, Every Last Life, put out the voiceless animals. Pay is suffering when it is spent on the spine. They must 
death, free the animals, ALM. Kafirs are Palestinian scarves, and they're a symbol of support for justice for the Palestinian people. Buying one will support the last remaining factory in Hebron that makes kafirs, and all proceeds from the sales support projects in Palestine, especially Gaza, as well as local solidarity organizations. From the traditional black and white kafir to an array of modern designs, all scarves are just $30 each. Explore the range and order online, or drop by 3CR during business hours. Wear your support for the rights of Palestinians. Go to kufiyas.org.au. That's K-U-F-I-Y-A-S.org.au. A 3CR supporter. So I'm going to pass on to Jam um, to talk us through some ways that speciesism can manifest itself. And then we're going to start like diving deeper into how we can start to understand this differently. Cool. Um, yeah. Hi, everyone. Um, yeah. Just a quick introduction to myself as well. Um, I'm Jam. I'm in Animal Rebellion also. Um, I'm also no expert on speciesism, but um, I'm going to uh, not touch um too much on like the philosophy or, or the thinking behind speciesism, but um, yeah, as Holly mentioned, just um, go through like the really key concepts, but then also sort of um, show how it manifests itself in uh, certain ways in reality, systemically, and also in the way we think and the way that we treat animals. Um, so if we could move on to the next slide, please, Holly. Cool. Thank you very much. So um, the word speciesism um, was coined in 1970 by a British psychologist called Richard Ryder. Um, five years later, um, Peter Singer from Australia um, actually defined it as, well, elaborated on it um, with the definition of a prejudice or bias in favour of the interests of members of one's own species and against those of members of other species. So um <clears throat> This was when um, the term speciesism was was coined, but um, speciesism actually sort of existed uh, long, long before 1970. And um, the way I see it, um, it's, it sort of stemmed from um, th- like really sort of human-centered thinking, um, which these days is called anthropocentrism. And that's the belief that um, human beings are the most important entity in the universe. Um, and yeah, the, the Wikipedia quote goes on to say that anthropocentrism Anthropocentrism interprets the world, interprets or regards the world in terms of human values and experiences. So it's basically looking through everything through a a human lens and sort of disregarding um, any other species and making the world in a way that um, only favors humans at the expense of um, the non-human animals. But then also... um, Things like anthropocentrism, just sort of this um, privilege of the, of human existence um, over everything else has led to sort of um, quite a few other oppressions um, as well. So like quite a few bad things, in my opinion, have sort of uh, come out of this. And so, yeah, there's a picture there of I think that's New York City um, where, where there's like some uh, some birds on top of the, um, the traffic light pole where things like urban design and things like that and um, are sort of really human focused and it, it forces um and non-human animal species to have to adjust and adapt or um or move or um or worse so um yeah that's just like an example of um 
of how speciesism sort of manifests itself in um, sort of the human urban environment. But then if we now look at the next slide, we have um, sort of these conceptions of animals um, using sort of like a value system which was created uh, by humans, which puts um, non-human non animal species sort of on a spectrum of um, essentially like their worth, because um, that's sort of a very human uh, concept. So um, just some yeah, really basic examples. So uh, where we have like the uh, domesticated dog um, considered to be a, like man's best friend, um, mainly because uh, they provide sort of um, fun and love and um, uh, sort of a social um, element which a human can relate to closely. There's another type of uh, speciesism which favours um, species which are closer to humans, which resemble humans um, as well. So um, where, like, for example, a primate um, will be considered as almost human or kind of human or sharing loads of human, human traits uh, will be considered to have higher worth or higher value um, compared to like another animal, like, for example, the jellyfish, um, which purely based on um, some factors that um, humans have made to uh, to judge things um, might be considered as like an alien species or or um, there are, there's even some argument that um, because uh, for certain uh, physiological reasons um, jellyfish might not even be animals at, at all so um, it's just sort of uh, judging things on um, this basis of um, this construct of human thought that was created to um, to create a, basically an artificial hierarchy of um of species which also then uh yeah um trans not transcends but is similar to other forms of oppression as well we then also have sort of like the demonization of certain animals so we have the shark where it's considered to be deadly or dangerous and stuff and they're sort of um known for killing a certain amount of people per year whereas actually humans kill way more sharks than um, sharks kill um, like all the time so um, there's a sort of way of spotlighting an animal in quite a negative way when it shouldn't be um, <clears throat> move on to the next slide so uh, speciesism then also manifests itself uh, systemically as well um, when sort of um, some thinking was formed by uh, like some philosophers and some thinkers um, a long time ago, essentially um, reducing a lot of animals down into machines with no feelings and um, no sort of no compassion, no no sort of intrinsic humanistic traits. Um, it sort of justified um, the use of animals as machines um, in the system. So here we have yeah uh, donkeys being made to work against uh, against their will and. It, this is just one of the ways that speciesism manifests itself systemically as well. And then we have a big one, which is animals as food. So, um, yeah, I think we're all like really familiar with this one. And um, we're going to touch on this one a little bit later on how um, the uh, how this sort of doesn't really make much sense, even sort of on a, on a global scale. But um, what we do have. Um, which I believe to be um, the result of speciesism is um, a loads and loads of um, non-human animal lives being um, uh, oppressed and tortured and, and then eventually murdered 
just for some food for humans, which um, yeah, which is of course speciesism uh, then also manifesting itself in the system. So um, yeah, that was a quick overview of what speciesism is. Um, it's basically just um, the yeah the the concept that the humans are the most superior species for whatever reason, and all of the species are on a hierarchy but lower than than humans, and they can therefore then um, be exploited or um, just treated in ways that we wouldn't treat um, other, most other human beings. So yeah, amazing. Um, so an unnatural occurrence. So essentially, what I'm going to dive into now is a little bit about that point that I made before at the start of this about the importance of recognizing the constructed nature. Um, sorry about that. My computer is not enjoying itself right now. Um, here we go. Yeah, I'm just going to let it let it um, exist by itself. So we're going to start exploring the constructed nature of this idea of our relationship to animals and how it's not um it's not like a it's not a relationship that's built on any kind of like inherent natural like naturalness or anything like that and how we can start to unpack and start to understand where the system comes from why it is the way it is and how we can hopefully work to change it um so i'm going to start by re reading an extract from a book by the author and activist and owner, well, co-kind of runner of Vine Sanctuary, Patrice Jones. Um, this book's called Oxen at the Intersection. Uh, it's a fantastic book. I'd really recommend it. Um, but I'm going to read an extract, which is from the start, very start of the book, which starts to dig into um, how our relationship to animals kind of came about and the modern, well, modern-ish um, origins of this. So hopefully my computer behaves as we start to read this. So feel free to read along as well. Uh, we'll also be sending out the slides afterwards. So Interstate 91 snakes north through Connecticut and Massachusetts. I can't pronounce that word. Apologies for those in America. Gradually growing greener and more hilly before entering Vermont, where billboards are illegal and many more trees than people populate the mountains. If you stop in at the Welcome Centre in Guildford, you'll see something else that defines the state. A larger-than-life-size photo mural of a smiling blonde boy standing in front of a line of sad-eyed brown cows. Skiers and leaf-peeping tourists notwithstanding, Vermont is dairy country. Even more than the state economy depends on cheddar, the state's psychology rests upon the presumption that that blonde boy over brown cow is a natural order of things. Vermonters need to believe that this state of affairs is not only non-injurious, but righteous. It wasn't always that way. Cows came to the Americas with Columbus. For centuries prior to the invasion of the Europeans, human and non-human inhabitants of what would become Vermont co-created ecosystems in which no one species predominated, and nobody claimed to own anybody or the land. The arrival of French fur trappers, intent on profit rather than subsistence, destabilised both social and ecological systems. British colonists rushed into the breach, bringing captive animals with them. The first farmed animals of Vermont laboured and died on family farms from which immigrant Vermonters fed themselves and traded locally. But incorporation of the region into the Burgoyne global capitalist economy eventually led to specialisation. 
Wool, not milk, was the commodity upon which the new state of Vermont came to depend. So much so that the economy of the region was even more dependent on sheep than the South was on cotton. When demand for wool plummeted in the wake of the Civil War, Vermont's agricultural fortunes crashed until new railroad lines perfectly positioned the state to ship milk to Boston and other fast-growing East Coast cities. It was this economic contingency, the chance combination of a drop in demand for one product and a new opportunity to market a similar commodity, and not any meaningful link between dairying and the mountains of Vermont, that set the state on that path to where it is today. Again, overcommitted to a single product of animal exploitation at a time when demand for that commodity is dropping. As our story begins, Vermont is striving to revitalize its agricultural economy. So essentially, the reason I wanted to read this is to give an example of the historical and constructed nature of many people's like relationship to animals. So I think I know I grew up in an area which had a strong like psychological connection to a certain form of use of animals. So in for instance, where where I grew up, that was also dairy. There's many other places who, you know, there's a strong kind of like farming identity, whether it's sheep farming or cow farming. And it can become really easy to see this as just the natural state of things. This is such a big part of these places and these identities. Um, and I think when we start to kind of unpack and look deeper, we can see the constructed roots of this. We can see how our relationship to animals is intrinsically tied to processes of colonization. It's intrinsically tied to you know economies and them rising and falling um, and how it's tied to other concepts such as ownership um, and land kind of yeah land ownership as well so I want to just after reading that I want to hear from some people um, about what are their reactions to this when you're hearing that what did it remind you of and what did you think and feel so feel free to just pop some things in the chat um, or you know, if one or two people maybe want to unmute and just say something um, that came to their mind when um, reading or hearing this little abstract. Um, I thought, thank you for sharing this, um, Harley. I thought this, um, this really, like, clearly explains, like, speciesism in so many ways. And um, what it made me think of is, um, is about... Um, the colonization of lands, humans, and um, in the Philippines, mm -hmm. and how when um, the Spanish came and colonized the Philippines, um, they um, they they were doing the same things that Europeans were doing in Vermont. Um, they they were um, displacing um, the indigenous people there um, and creating an economic system and social system. Um, uh, and, and also bringing, um, non-native animals with them, including cows. Mm. And, and it's based on racism and speciesism for economic reasons. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much, Malaya. Um, great to hear from you. And also just great to hear that perspective as well about how we can really see this happening all over the world. And I, I, I often refer to it as like this idea of like outsourcing destruction, um, and I think the way animals have been used to kind of outsource this form of destruction is a really, it's really important to understand that because 
if we don't understand that, we're missing a very a whole layer um, when we're trying to think about global justice and we're trying to think about climate justice as well. It's a whole layer that we can easily miss and not think about. You're listening to an anti-species talk from Animal Rebellion and we're going to take another song here. This song is Ancient Dreams in a Modern Land by Marina. And yeah, I thought this one was quite relevant with lyrics like um, you don't need to conform, those kind of lyrics. And I just thought thought of this in light of, uh, yeah, anti-speciesism. I think often as a society we expect speciesism because it is a social norm and and other people around us are thinking that way. Um, And certainly for myself listening to uh, punk music very much, you know, challenged that idea. And this song definitely isn't a punk song. It's more of a poppy kind of song, but very much has that mindset of uh, not conforming to these dominant ideologies around us. Why were you put on earth? You could be lost, but you belong to the world. We're now living in a seminal age. The walls are being broken and we're ready for change. Ancient dreams in a modern land. I'm trying to get back as fast as I
independent and peaceful Australian network, IPAN, has launched a national people's inquiry into the costs and consequences of Australia's involvement in the US-led wars, the US alliance and its alternatives. The inquiry aims to promote a national conversation and is currently inviting submissions from organisations and individuals. The great majority of Australians have never been asked about this alliance, its implications and its limitations, which has led to an uncritical foreign policy. It's time this changed. To make a submission, go to independentpeacefulaustralia.com.au. That's independentpeacefulaustralia.com.au. Submissions close on the 31st of July. IPAN is a 3CR supporter. So I'm going to move on to talk about how this kind of transition to an animal agriculture-based economy is not unique to Vermont, as Malaya just kind of pointed out. It can be found in places all over the world, and it is incredibly and deeply linked to the process of colonisation. We can see how Indigenous food systems all over the world and their ways of interacting with nature and animals were displaced by the practice of agriculture. So in many ways, speciesism was constructed alongside other ideologies. Um, And these ideologies, um, you know, some of them might be the concept of land ownership, the concept of property status of both humans and animals, um, the domestication of humans and the natural world, um, and the process of modern industrial agriculture. So these concepts, um, they're all constructed And they were all kind of created to serve a way of living which prioritises profit, which prioritises dominance over the natural world rather than um, subsistence with it. So in her recent book on animal resistance in the global capitalist era, um, the author Surat Colling speaks to the process of domestication Um, stating that contrary to the dominant narratives about domestication enabling human progress, domestication enabled powerful elitist societies that promoted large-scale warfare and violence at different points in history. So I think it's important to note that while we often think about domestication being the, the taming of the natural world, what we can see if we actually look at domestication across the world, whether that be animals or um, nature, it led to societies which were built on ownership and where the more you owned, um, the more kind of power you have. So we can see this where a kind of like living with the land kind of system started to be um, out displaced by modern industrial agriculture and modern industrial agriculture has always relied on the bodies and the labor of animals and of humans who were treated as lesser so we see this through you know animals pulling plows animals used as food slavery um which both historic and modern day slavery um, and we can see how the system that we live in is one which is built on the assumption that human labor can be bought and sold 
um, as well as that land, like our environment and our world and animals can be bought and sold. So the truth is that farming animals require extraordinary amounts of land, meaning that when economies begin to form around ownership and animals be begin to be dependent on for food, labor and militarization, more and more land was needed, more so that could be found in any one country. So we can look at the fires in the Amazon today, where forests are burnt to make way for more cows and what they are fed, as a modern example of this need to conquer and destroy. This come hand in hand with treating any animals, and I include humans in that, as things to be used or profited from. But it's no coincidence, after all, that two of the first living products to be shipped to the newly colonised Australia were convicts and cows. And I think this quote, again by Surat Collins, really captures this understanding um, of how our relationship to animals is so intrinsically linked to um, this mentality and this mindset of conquering and domination. So in the mindset of colonisers, all the wild things are available to consume, control and exploit. Animalization and oppression. So for the next bit, I'm going to go into the concept of animalization. Um, which is an idea that some individuals, um, and this isn't restricted to species, but some individuals have this label and this attachment towards them, which is a process, yeah, that we call animalization, that those who are considered closer to animals um, and the idea, the categorization, categorization of animal becomes a reason for and a um, a kind of uh, permission to exploit and oppress certain individuals. So in this kind of part of the presentation, um, I'm going to be drawing a lot from a couple of different authors. Um, so I'm going to be drawing a lot from Athan Silco, who co-wrote the book Afroism, and also another book written by Afco, um, which is called Racism as Zoological Witchcraft. And I'm also going to be drawing a lot from the author, Sonara Taylor, who's a disability rights and animal liberation activist as well. So I'm happy to share any resources after this as well. So to start off with, um, yeah, this is just, this is a funny little image that I found, but I also do think it is really interesting that these are genuine synonyms for animalization. Brutalization, animalization, debasement, degradation, delineation, depiction, um, and I'm not even sure what that last word means, but essentially like just through this kind of like thesaurus kind of thing, we can start to see how we view and how we assume the things that we assume about animals um, and those that we animalize in our world. So what does animalization mean and who is animalized? The process of colonizing and exploiting the labor of animals' bodies signposts a deeper process, which is that of animalization. In their book of essays on speciesism, race and class, Athens Silco described animals not as a species-based category, but as a colonial invention that has been imposed on humans and animals. So essentially kind of like what this means in maybe a bit less not academic language is that we often say, you know, human and animal. We often use animal as kind of like a biological category. But what these authors kind of argue, and what I think is 
a different way of conceptualizing um, our relationship to animals is that animal is no longer a biological category because human is no longer just referring to you know our physical species it's referring to a set of ideas so animal has become like a constructed conceptual category to describe all those who are not human or are not human enough so the two sisters explain the vast difference between the biological category of animal which does include humans like it's just the kind of category of all those who are animals so those who are not plants um, or kind of other genuses of our world, um, and the conceptual category, which not only includes all those classified as animal biologically, um, so non-human animals, so pigs, cows, chickens, etc., um, insects, birds, but which also includes animalized, animalized humans, um, and these can include people of colour, people with disabilities, and women. So the codes detail the history of the human-animal divide as one of domination and conquest, um, whereas in white Europeans through this process of colonisation um, designated themselves and their point of reference as constitutive of being human. So this kind of built the idea of the human and the animal. And this is something that, you know, might seem like a really, again, like might seem like a really natural distinction that we have humans over here we have animals over there. But what we can see, again, by looking through, you know, the way this has been developed and constructed is, once again, this is a constructed system. This is not a natural system. This is not a natural divide. And this is not a divide that has existed for as long as there has been humans. Um, so if we look at a lot of, you know, civilizations or even communities today who live outside this kind of industrialized paradigm um, what we can see is this way of viewing the world as humans over here and animals over here as this division is not inherent it's not natural and in fact it's you know I think it's quite fair and quite easy to say that it's been constructed in order kind of to prop up the system that needs to work a certain way in order to function that needs to, you know, be a system of exponential growth and a system of resource and like a labor intensive system um, and which relies on the unpaid labor of those who are animalized or those who are treated as less than human. So in this like way of creating this category of human and this category of animal, um, it allowed like the, these concepts to be weaponized not only against non-humans, animals, but against marginalized homo sapien populations. In her book, Beasts of Burdens, um, animal and disability liberation activist, author and artist, Sonara Taylor, describes her own experience of being animalized or bestialized as a disabled woman and the similarity she saw between her plight and those of animals who are treated both as beasts and as burdens. And I think like if we think about the animals we might see in our lives, like this, this is quite, uh, a I think this is like a, quite an insightful way of seeing um, our relationship to animals, that they're, they're often considered to be, you know, beasts and victims, but they're often also considered sometimes to be like burdens, they're burdens on the world. Like, you know, ever I think everyone 
who's done outreach of any kind has probably been asked that question of like, you know, but what would happen to all the animals if we didn't eat them? Like, you know, where the reason that they exist, so their burdens. Um, so the way we view animals as lesser than human and as deserving of, of exploitation as a single issue, this I think this ignores the way in which animal exploitation sits at the centre of the very system we stand against, which is a system that is built on division. Um, it's a system that is built on the unpa- on unpaid labour, primarily of black, brown, female and animal bodies, and the belief system that individuals earn their worth by contributing productively to a system of profit and exponential growth so that everyone needs to earn their way into this system. So I think touching on that is a way of starting to kind of, yeah, like starting to reconfigure our understanding of animals, our understanding of what it means to be animal and our understanding of how important it is to kind of think about these things and think about the layers of these conversations um, in order to, I think, deepen and expand our activism for climate and our activism for animals um, and also our understanding of just global oppression in general because when we remove animals from the equation, um, like I said earlier, we are missing a whole layer. We're missing a whole kind of kind of really big piece of the puzzle of why the world is the way it is and why oppression is the way it is. Hopefully you enjoyed that talk from Jam and Harley from Animal Rebellion. And that was not the entire talk. We couldn't fit that in uh, on this show. Uh, But if you do want to hear the rest of the talk, um, which covers um, going into more depth around environmental issues and how it relates to anti-speciesism and and lots more, that there's plenty more left on that video. So uh, search Animal Rebellion on YouTube, subscribe to their channel, and the video is called Anti-Speciesism and the Fight for global climate justice uh you can also find out more about animal rebellion generally at animalrebellion.org and yeah that is basically all we have for today um a reminder our show is one till two every sunday in a couple of weeks we've got our radiothon show so make sure you tune into that and we'll also be uh doing some calls out on social media before that raising money for uh 3cr to keep the station and our show going uh so really encourage people to tune in for our radiothon show and, and please donate uh, if you can to our Radiothon uh, fundraiser um, and yeah you can listen to our show via the radio 855am if you are in Melbourne uh, but you can also check out our show 1 to 2 Sunday Melbourne time also wherever you are around the world via the 3CR website 3cr.org.au you can also check out all of our previous podcasts uh, via our website, which is 3cr.org.au forward slash freedom of species, as well as on a range of uh, podcast apps, including iTunes and Spotify. Uh, and also on any of the platforms you listen, if you give us any reviews and ratings, that is much appreciated. If you've got any feedback for the show, you can email us, freedomofspecies at gmail.com. You can also um, connect with us by searching Freedom of Species on Facebook, uh, finding us on Twitter at FOS Radio. Um, also, make sure you check out other um, 3CR shows via the 3CR website too. 
And yeah, we're going to finish up with a song. Uh, the uh, the, the final bit of the talk spoke about um, connections between speciesism and racism. So I thought with that in mind, um, I'd finish up with a song by a couple of Indigenous Australian artists um, and a song that deals with issues around racism within Australia. So this song is Black Magic by Blake Boy and Dallas Woods. Uh, so we're going to finish up with that one. Uh, we'll be back next week with more Freedom of Species. Black magic, either you do or don't have it. Young, black and gifted, talking the whole package. Magic, magic, lights, camera, action. You are now witnessing the power. Unstoppable beast. We used to be together, living happily, beautiful weather. Thought it was forever, calling mama be the soon. Take a word with you, got a tomorrow, no more line. I put you let you come down in the yellow line. Reminiscing, chilling, freezing, laying down ice toes. Sticking, missing, twisting, flipping, spinning. You'll want my side, representing out of Kumala. This is how I wanna live, but welcome, Marga, took a proud Ninaya for Ali Black Magic. Either you do or don't have it. Young, black, and gifted, talking the whole package. Magic, magic, lights, camera, action. You are now with Sing the power of black magic Gonna see another Marbo, someone who really cares about tomorrow, not about where to get his next Badu. We need more Kathy Freemans, possibly more Freeman. These days, blacks getting locked up for no reason. I you wrote them while I'm preaching. Arms for the beggar man, they took our children away, apparently for the better man. Now they take our land, big money for the settlement. Kevin Rudd said sorry, and they thought that it was settled. But that unsettled shit made a finger to politicians. The day I listen will be the day that I see a difference. Our people in Wyndham gonna see Coffin over prison. They think that it's living, but it isn't. See it different vision. Young, black, and talented we don't fit the description. What a time to be alive, boy, I die for my district. Vivid pictures and lyrical number and I'm pointing at my skin. Nikki, women, boy, you know I'm black magic. Either you do or don't have it. Young, black, and gifted talking the whole package. Magic, magic, lights, camera, action. You are now witnessing the power of black magic. Black skin, white skin, centuries fighting Straight to the point like I just stuck the knife in Throw me to the bush, come out as a warrior Put me in the city, come out as a prime minister If you don't want to close the gap, then close your gap Heat a combo, I'm cold like that You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.